I'm joined this afternoon by Stuart Waiton. Uh, Stuart founded uh, the Scottish Union for Education and has been uh, leading the pushback against indoctrination in schools and before that against other uh, moves by the state to take over and control family life such as uh, name person and uh, getting involved in the detail of how parents chastise children. Um, and uh, for this, um, I had the pleasure of speaking to some anti-Stuart Waiton protesters. He has like inverse groupies. Um, and one of them was standing with a sign boldly um, uh, pronouncing, Stuart Waiton is a bigot. So I, I asked this person if they'd ever met him. And they looked a little bit sheepish and said no. But they assured me he'd written some very bad things that were published in The Guardian. So we're going to go into some of these today. And... Um, and I, I want to start, Stuart, with, with the Scottish Union for Education. You founded it. It was a new idea at the time. We've seen tremendous output through your, through your Substack account in terms of intelligent, thoughtful, inciting writing on education. In fact, it's now the go-to place to find that sort of writing. Um, could you t take us through how it's how this has gone since its founding and and, and how it's been developing? Yeah, um, so it was set up with an understanding that we need new institutions. So a good example of that, I suppose, is the EIS, the Teachers Union. So the EIS um, boldly proclaims that a trans woman is a woman and a trans man is a man. Um, it's not clear what that has to do with being a union. It's not clear what that means for teachers who might disagree with that um, and so on. But across the board, you find institutions appear to have adopted um, a rather peculiar ideological framework for engaging with things. So the attempt was to try and start to create a union that relates both to parents and teachers the community in general um, and I suppose my my fantasy objective is to create a mass movement now do I think that's possible um, I don't know um, is it necessary I think so because essentially I think the public in general have got a fairly commonsensical view of the world. They've got a fairly liberal, a fairly democratic, a fairly down-to-earth um, perspective on things. Whereas I think the people who are running our institutions have none of the above. So the it's really it's set up to try and um, make contact, I suppose, with the public as much as possible. So in that respect, how has it gone? Uh, well, we've got about a thousand subscribers, not as paid. We've got about a hundred paid subscribers, which is okay. Um, we've had a few decent donations from people who support us. Uh, and we're looking into possible funding to get um, people to work for us for one or two days a week to do some of the administrative stuff. Uh, in terms of contact with parents, that has been the most interesting dimension of it in terms of emails uh, and meetings. So we've had meetings in Dundee, um, Aberdeen and Glasgow. 
all of which have been very successful. Glasgow once sold out, there's over 100 people there. And um, we've had some very interesting speakers, speakers online. We've had Lionel Shriver, the novelist, um, Jim Sellers. Um, Jim Sellers came to speak uh, at the Dundee meeting. Uh, he was, you know, I'm, I'm not a Scottish nationalist myself, um, but he's a very interesting man. And so we've had some very interesting people. And we've also got a lot of new writers. So a lot of people which was a surprise to me. A lot of people have come forward who uh, want to write uh, and now contribute to the Substack and are doing little bits of research. And we've produced uh, a pamphlet on the transgender issue, which we've sent to all the schools uh, in Scotland, all the MSPs, MPs, and so on. So I suppose we're, in terms of where we need to go now is we need to try and develop further the kind of link with parents. We're going to try and set up an online parent forum across Scotland, possibly locally, try and possibly build up branches of parents and people who are concerned about some of the issues in schools. Um, uh, and I think we've also got to, to develop better links with critical educational thinkers. Um, because it's easy to get carried away with some of the kind of the woke issues, like the transgender issue. Um, but I think we need to try and have a kind of inspirational idea of what education should be as well, I think. So you, you don't want to just be sort of identifying the negatives. I think you want to promote what a brilliant, enlightened education should be for all kids. Um, and I think that is a serious problem in terms of the Scottish education system at the minute, in terms of where it's going. Um, and the lack of priority it seems to give to actual education as a knowledge-based thing. Yes, because this is this is one of the things that's most striking. It's everything but knowledge and education as it used to be. So it's, on one aspect, it's, it's preparing children for the world of work, right? For an economic benefit to society. Now, the, the, this one, this one annoys me on several levels, right? Firstly, having run businesses and taking the products of the Scottish education system, and we're talking master's level, right? I find myself running remedial English classes inside the company. I, I found it wasn't that the, it, there was nothing wrong with the actual people. There was something wrong with the education system. One of the things is when they came in, and we're talking people who've been through successfully through the entire education system. They couldn't write. Writing was very poor. And the reason they couldn't write is they couldn't think, because they couldn't marshal the thoughts. The thoughts were all there, but they weren't organized. And they weren't, they weren't viewing problems systematically. They didn't have the basic skills for writing. And the basic skills for writing are so closely entwined with the basic skills for thinking this was a major problem. Now, what I found is it was teachable. We could sort that in a couple of years. And some of the people who started off very constrained by this turned into really very good writers. But it did strike me that we really shouldn't be needing to do that. So when they talk about, when the government comes along, people who have never run a business and never engaged in any economic activity for the most part and start lecturing us on what business needs 
in order to achieve economic success and then starts to roll that out into the education system. I'm very sceptical because what business actually needs is people who are able to have clear, concise thoughts, who could get engaged in a subject, who can get lost in a subject and really commit to it, who can question themselves, who hold themselves to a standard of proof that means they're constantly checking their own thinking, challenging their own thinking. These are really deep underpinnings of education. And and that I'm not seeing that be, being taught. Um, I, I, I've got another example. Before I do, this, this sort of fundamental principles and how it equips people for life, is this one of the problems you're seeing? Yeah, I mean, I actually think it's a problem that education thinks that it needs to be education in relation to business. I think education should be in relation to education. I think if people have a brilliant education, they've got the capacity then to do anything. Um, whereas the it's it's like most institutions. Most institutions appear to be confused about their role for whatever reason, which is a, would be a long, long sociological discussion about why that might be. But for whatever reason, you look at just about any institution and that institution is filling itself up with kind of values and ideas that don't come from or belong in that institution. And it's every institution's the same. So, you know, the police are a bit more like social workers and social workers are often a bit more like the police. Well, whatever it is, it doesn't matter where you are, you'll get a confusion of roles. So I think I've mentioned to you before this, that, yeah, there's a confusion of roles in schools between what is a parent and what is a teacher. Um, so there's a constant confusion where they seem to have lost a sense of um, the br the greatness, really, of what that institution can provide. You know, whether it's law and justice or whether it's education. You know I mean, they they should be able to comprehend that education is a magnificent achieve achievement in terms of where. The, the past that we have, the legacy that we have, whether it's the, the literature, the science, geography, and so on. There's so much depth of knowledge and intelligence that's been developed over the generations that need to be passed on to kids. And, I mean, I look at this young teachers I've seen who I know, um, and I look at the way they think, and the way they think about what it means to be a good teacher almost never relates to them understanding that they should be brilliant at their subject. You know, that they should be inspiring experts in history, for example. They think that, for example, they need to understand dyslexia or they need to understand sign language for whatever it is. They need to understand the race quest, whatever it is. It's almost never that they think, I need to be a brilliant historian. That's what I need to inspire the kids is to be the best historian possible so that I can give them you know, real depth of knowledge and insight with my teaching. And that's, that's a, a broader problem schools in terms of authority because there is a problem of authority, but the problem of authority is often uh, reduced to a kind of technical question of how do you, how do you control a class. Whereas the bottom line for how you control a class, the starting point should be you're brilliant, right? You are a brilliant, knowledgeable expert in your subject 
and you know that what you understand must be passed on to these kids, right? You, you, ha you have a sense of the importance of your role as a teacher of whether it's history or English, English literature uh, and so on. And that's a starting point for where authority comes from and then where discipline in the classroom needs to be instilled. Because if you, if you don't have a sense of the importance of your role, the idea that these kids really do need to be disciplined, they need to be sitting down and listening and listening carefully to what's being said. If you don't, if you don't understand yourself how important your subject is, how can you motivate yourself to actually get children to, especially working class kids? I always think the, the biggest problem is working class kids are going to be falling further and further behind because they lack teachers who have this sense of purpose, uh, who can actually discipline them uh, and be forceful with them in a class because what they they know what they're teaching is so important. And I think that's really lacking. Um, and that's part of what we're going to try and you know, that's, it's, I mean, that's a longer process, but, you know, part of what we're trying to do is not just challenge indoctrination, but promote the idea of what is brilliant about education and what Scottish education should be. The, the, the point about institutions not knowing what they're for, I, I remember someone describing to me they were in a little bothy, sort of sheltering from the, the, the wilds of Scottish weather, and five or six people ended up coming into this little bothy. So they were kind of stuck, they were in there for the night, and when conversation got round to what do you do, right? He said there was, we all went round and we're all assistant to, or I've got an I've, an involvement in a certain area. Nobody knew what they would what they were, apart from one guy who said shepherd. He knew what he was. He knew what he did. So none of the rest. We all had white collar jobs. None of us knew what we were. So that was interesting. Now. You mentioned there, you'd mentioned working class kids falling behind. So the, the Scottish government have got two, among at least two objectives in education, right? So one is to promote the economic activity of, of the country by equipping children for the world of work, whatever that means. Um, and I would have to say, you're sceptical about that. I've never heard anyone from industry say that we want schools to be training grounds for our for our business right they want children who are engaged with active minds and good core skills that's what they want they want they want human beings that are excellent that's what they want but the other one is right closing the attainment gap now this this is this is really this annoys me, again, on a number of levels. One is, it's a relative measure, right? So you can close the attainment gap by making the smart kids dumber. And apparently that's a good thing. Okay? Point number one. Um, secondly, there's no dis the, the, the attainment gap is, is held to be a bad and it comes from poverty and prejudice, apparently. It doesn't come from anything kind of real. So we're not tackling the real issues. If we just say to teachers, fix it, somehow they'll fix it. Um, a certain amount of the attainment gap will, is, is genetic. So how are teachers meant to, to fix that? I, I went to Airdrie Academy 
and I got prizes in certain technical subjects. And when I looked at the old newspapers, my father had been at Airdrie Academy and got prizes in certain technical subjects. Right, so th there was there was clearly um, there was clearly a, a an inheritance there. There was nothing to do with me and nothing to do with the teachers necessarily, but that was that was just something that I had an aptitude for. You can't train that out, right? And and trying to seems almost like a form of cruelty because we've got this, and we're telling children they've all got to be the same. Right, the, the, removing the attainment gap seems to be, to me, to be perverse. And when you read people like, like John Taylor Gatto, who talks about the genius and diversity of what kids actually are, and who teaches, who taught by finding ways to enthuse them and get them involved and engaged with something that mattered to them, so it was very individual. Attainment gap had, n had nothing to do with it. Well, I, I'm not a big one on genetics. And I, while I accept people have certain strengths and weaknesses, I suspect if you went back you know, 200 years, it would be unimaginable to a lot of upper middle class people that these people in the mill could go to university. That would be unimaginable. Well, 200, 200 years ago, my... Some of my ancestors um, signed a name with an X. Yeah. So, you know, what, what people can achieve, I think, is, uh, is unknown. Um, and I think the vast majority of people have the capacity to do all sorts of things educationally. And all we can do, I think, as, an, as a society with an education system, is encourage all children to aspire towards... Uh, having a a proper serious engagement with education, and and I suppose that's one of my concerns is the the extent to which education now is not taken that seriously. But I also think there's a problem with the way that we engage with universities, and we think universities should be th places where everybody goes, because I don't think it's necessary, um, and I suspect society would be more dynamic if actually you encouraged a lot of 18 year olds to get apprenticeships and get jobs and so on um, rather than go to university to a certain extent um, but i take your point about the, the attainment gap there's, there's often a kind of artificiality to kind of league tables and you know it's, it's another kind of um, they try and create administrative frameworks for resolving you know and they think well if we've got this table <laughs> then we can try and nudge up the table and there's always uh there's always cheats you know there's, there's always ways that um people get round it i mean I, I think of the the american program the wire when uh they had league tables on uh, murder uh resolving murder cases so of course if you had a league table on how many murder cases you wanted to resolve, the best thing was not to have any murder cases in the first place. <laughs> so you had all these cops trying to like walk past bodies and not find anything. Because of course it made sense for the league table. So I do think that's one of the problems with the way these things are, um, are constructed in a, in a rather artificial way. Um, well, one of the other issues with the closing the gap, I was, I was speaking to a school teacher um, from a, a, a a country school about this and they got closing the gap extra funding 
and it came to certain children because as they were measured, they were deprived, right? So the, the, it was all to do with income into the home, right? And um, the teacher said, yeah, the thing was, those kids were fine, right? Their, their, their parents were great because there wasn't much money, but that doesn't define very much. Um, so we got the money from those kids and we used it for some other kids who had, who had genuine problems, right? Um, and because we're kind of not too closely monitored, that kind of worked. Small, small rural school and all the rest of it, we're all mucking in together. Um, but if you actually look at what the rules are saying, the rules are saying that, you know, these kids are, are, are meant to be struggling and they're just, they're just not. And these other kids, they're meant to be fine, and they're just not. So, you know, even in that very small sample, it, it's it's not, it's clearly not measuring anything useful. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose one of the one of the problems I think with education as well is that we've we we individualise everything. I mean, it's not just education; we individualise everything in terms of how we think about it. So, rather than thinking about what's the best education for Britain? We're encouraged to think what's the best school for our kids, right? And that's, that's how, the, and, and that's where the pressure might come with league tables and things like that. Um, and that's not really the way education should develop. And to a certain extent, it's not the way even us as individuals and parents should myopically think just in terms of our child. So obviously you think about your child, but it'd be useful if we actually could try and think more generally and have a sense that education is about what's useful for society. So if some kids are doing brilliantly, let's push those kids, you know, because that's good, right? If, if they are elite kids who are brilliant, go for it, right? Why worry? Because that would be a problem for the attainment gap. But that shouldn't be a worry because if you're thinking about things in terms of what's what's for the benefit of society, having those kids with a brilliant education, well, that's great, right? That's what you want, and you want to then work out how you can make sure that universities are at such a high standard that they can be pushed um, as far as they can go. So I think that's more of the approach I I would try and think about is what's what's for the benefit of society and try not to get too preoccupied with the kind of individualized nature of what how how they think about education at the minute so um the state's thinking about what's for the benefit of society but it's coming up with transgender ideology it's coming up with diversity as a as a positive good although there's an interesting there's an interesting issue there because um the the U the UK column had a had a get together at one point in the Green outside Parliament, uh, in Westminster. And uh, as it happened, Extinction Rebellion had also arranged a get together on the same green at the same time. So we had all the Extinction Rebellion team and our team, and our team were every age, every colour, every, every nationality, right? It was folk. Right, the Extinction Rebellion all seemed to be white middle class kids from North London. Right now, I thought this was quite interesting. Um, when you were involved in the No to Name Person campaign, 
one of the things that was most noticeable about that was the diversity of ideas, opinions, personalities that were involved. It's all over the map. And they all came together to fight something they saw as a fight that had to be won. The, the approach to diversity that's coming from the state is very much to say you must all think the same way. You must all view the world the same way. There is only one right, true, uh, real way of viewing the world. Everything else is heresy. It's, 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 it's very religious in the bad connotations of the word religious. And it's very controlling. And it's anything but diverse, but it's labelled diversity. Um, we've got anti-racist anti ideology. Um, and we've got sustainability. Any of these you want to particularly pick on at this point? Um, well, it's it's interesting the way the equality, diversity, inclusion framework has just taken over completely. Um, I mean, it was there as a kind of th and the thunder, the thunder booms in the background as you say this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, the building blocks for this were all there and they've been there for quite some time. But nevertheless, the fact that you can just say EDI and everybody knows what that means now and everybody in every institution knows what it means um, is quite significant. I, I suppose at a certain level it's useful because it starts to help to frame an understanding that what we have here is a, is a very specific type of ideology even if it's an ideology that doesn't have a, a, a real name yet and it doesn't necessarily have people with banners with a, a very, very clear idea of this is who we are. We can all see who they are, right? You can tell and you know that people with this outlook will have the same perspective on things, whether it's to do with uh, illegal immigration what how dare you say illegal or whether it's to do with sustainability uh, and environmentalism um, on the transgender question they'll have the same perspective on the idea of whiteness and white guilt um, and so on uh, what's kind of interesting about these things i mean the race one for example um, i can't remember you might have even sent me the link to this i can't remember but anyway someone sent me a link to um, the university sort of quality assurance group and the people in Scotland who are developing um, the the kind of race awareness approach, if you like. I was going to say curriculum. It's not quite the curriculum yet, but the approach. But what's fascinating about it is how incoherent it is. You know, it's kind of coherent in terms of the values, but once they actually then say, well, we, we'll write a pamphlet and say what this actually means, it becomes really incoherent or really crass. So one of the issues that they promote is the idea that if you believe in academic freedom, then you're guilty of white indifference, right? And so they've got this kind of table of from white supremacy, then this white indifference, you know, which is kind of rubbing along next to white supremacy. So if you believe in academic freedom, in this, as far as this chart is concerned, and this is for Scottish universities, which and they're adopting this as a framework. Um, then you're you're guilty of white indifference for believing in academic freedom. Of course, as soon as you ask the person that wrote this, 
to justify it, they start to backpedal, um, which is what happened, because I threw this out as a kind of, this should be a news story, some people picked up on it, and then they asked, as good journalists should, the people who wrote it, well, how can you justify the idea that academic freedom means that you're guilty of white indifference? And they start to sort of like, oh, no, 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 we're not, we're not, that's not quite what we're saying, you know, we're just saying that if you take academic freedom too far so that, you know, you're not really bothered about, etc., etc. Um, so it ju- does show that there is a real, there's a flimsy dimension, even though it appears monolithic and kind of everywhere and therefore appears to be coherent when you actually start to challenge and question some of the the logic or lack of logic in this um on these issues and you find that across the board you know that the trans question is deeply incoherent in terms of the logic i mean if you if you're going to defend the idea of a trans child then why can't a child be a cat you know, or a banana, or whatever they want. I mean, if you if, if your self-identification is this kind of moral absolute, then wh- where do you go with that? Um, which is why I love the whole cat issue. I think it's it's great. Um, we have got litter trays in Scottish schools. Well, I'm st- I'm, I'm still waiting for absolute evidence of that. It wouldn't it, it wouldn't uh, it wouldn't be a great surprise to me. But yeah. Um, well, I was told it was a school in air, but I haven't. Well, got, I haven't so, got so, half so was I, but I passed it on to a journalist to check it out, and he said he can't find any evidence of it. Oh, so okay, so I'm, I'm not I'm not sure if they've gone there yet. But that is the logic. I mean, that's the problem that they're in. I mean, I'd some uh, again someone who's just started writing for us. Um, who lives in Portsmouth, sent me up the uh, Portsmouth's new transgender policy for kids, which is just entirely, you know, if a kid says they're trans, then they're trans, and that's great, and you should celebrate this, etc., etc. So, well, okay, well, what, what does that mean? If there's a there's hundred different genders, so which of those hundred is this, is this particular child, and part, does that mean furries are part of their identity? Can they be this? Can they be that? Um, it's so logically inconsistent and has so many underlying profound problems in terms of um, well all, all sorts of things for kids that uh, that that that's one of the frustrating and interesting things about engaging in these these issues um, but I think there's a lot of scope there you know the the lack of coherence with some of these ideas and the the dangerousness of them um, especially from an education perspective you know if, you, if you're promoting the idea that academic freedom is somehow associated with racism yeah well what what's a university and th- these are the people who are setting the standards for university <laughs> who are developing uh, these kind of ideas and in the same paper meritocracy <laughs> is a sign of white supremacy that's right that's absolutely right you're right <laughs> uh, one of your writers Stuart Baird who's a secondary school teacher he, so he he's talking about um, sustainability so he he, he said uh, an early curriculum for excellence example is learning for sustainability. This is a cross-curricular approach which enables learners, you can tell it's government language, enables learners, educators, schools and the wider communities, I, I don't get that either, to build a socially just, sustainable and equitable society. Now, so that's re-engineering society, which is a lot to ask kids to do, right? Um, all of these things, social justice, sustainability, and equity, are deeply problematic ideas. At the very least, they should be being viewed from more than one direction. It's entirely inappropriate that a political ideology like that should be mandated 
for all for the whole curriculum right if if it's if if someone with a uniform did it would be pointing would be saying fascist well it's it's one of the it is one of the gobsmacking things when you read these documents like the head the head teacher's guidance document is just overtly says we are about social justice well, absolutely there's no there's no discussion about it. there's nothing there about excellence in education there's almost nothing there about education it's about social justice and they say this is about social justice and that is one of the things that you think well th there must be space here because the whole basis of how we think about education is that education should be about teaching facts that are accepted and then having debates about ideas that are contested and the social justice idea is contested right there's no there's no doubt about that yeah. it is highly contested but i think what you what's what's happened at the minute is that you've got people who run institutions and society who have a very similar perspective and sensibility a kind of therapeutic aware sensibility through which all these other things kind of fit around um and they can't imagine how social justice cannot be just a straightforward thing. It's, it's almost incomprehensible to them. You know, it's, there's, to not, which is why I think you've now got this, this constant use of the term far right. right? So you never, which, you never which, get, which apparently you are, despite well, well, being a left. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> you, you never get the term right. Uh -huh. Right? I mean, almost never. Right? So no one says the right wing. It's the far right. Right? Far right. So everything now is described as far right, and that allows, and that's kind of within their imagination because they, they seem to social justice. How can you possibly have any questions with that? If you question it, you're far right. So if you're far right, you're really an extremist, right? So the, the, in their imagination, I think they they are the good in society, and they, they think that's that's the almost the totality of legitimate thought. And if you if you're outside of that, you're you're a far right. You're an extreme. There's something there's something wrong with you. And I think that's the way they're able to just carry on. Although I haven't said that, I did, I also think there's a huge number of of people within institutions who uh, are just going along with the flow. It's not that they're card carrying social justice warriors. Um, I, th I think you get two types of people. They tend to be the sort of the zealots, which relatively small in number. And then you get the kind of hangers-on, the people that think that they're being good you know, by following this. Because what's wrong with equality? What's wrong with diversity? What's wrong with including people? You know, who, who could be against that? <laughs> when you say it like that, who, who could? What's wrong with me? Um, so I, I do think you get a lot of hangers-on in terms of um, how institutions operate. That, that's, that's why I think as soon as, you, you know, if you just press them and say, yes, but what about that? They kind of mostly uh, they fall apart. Yeah, yeah. It's, they're kind of a little bit I mean, flummoxed. This is a point that uh, Kami Badenoch made when she was trying to interview um, someone who detransitioned and was speaking very movingly, passionately about essentially she'd been an unhappy teenager and needed someone to talk to, and instead she was medicated and taken down a path that led to uh, surgery. And she's now trying to rebuild a life, but under extraordinarily, extraordinarily difficult circumstances. So Kemeny Badenoch wanted to, as the minister responsible, wanted to speak to this person and had months of fighting her own officials. And she was describing officialdom. She said that about 20% about are activists and have an agenda. 
most, almost all, just will do whatever's easiest. And there's a few that are really excellent. And that's, that's how she summarised it, yeah. which I thought was, was quite interesting. You see, I think what, what's really interesting about this is that the thing that makes it really difficult is that this ideology is, is a kind of etiquette, right, about being not kind, caring, that's what you get. So this Portsmouth transgender thing, it's got, that's on the front page, it's all this, with kids, yeah. kids doing this with their hands, right, little heart. Right, as if like you know, people who don't agree with them, obviously you know, they've got they don't have a heart. There's something wrong with them, right? So there's this kind of like therapeutic etiquette that's bound up with the framework of how they talk about equality, diversity, and inclusion, that makes it something different. It's it's not like an old political fight. You say I, I'm a socialist. I believe in these these ideals. I'm a con conservative or whatever I am, right? Or I'm a liberal. Right, these are political ideals. This is a kind of, it's, it's like a form of political ideology that's collapsed into a sort of therapeutic etiquette. So it's about being nice, you know, just, well, just be nice. Can you not, what's wrong with you? You know, you should be nice to black people. You should respect black people for what they are. You should respect, you know, so the term respect and so on comes out all the time. And you shouldn't, um, you shouldn't offend, you shouldn't harm. It's all these kind of, um, uh, protective, anti-bullying. So that that's where it all comes within the sort of um, bullying harassment code framework. You know, you read a bullying code harassment framework, and it's like it's like EDI. And, and, of, and of course, they're of using it, you know. your vocabulary. They're not using your dictionary because none of these words mean necessarily what you might think they mean. Yeah. Yeah. Because harm doesn't mean harm. Right? Well, well, it yeah, but For well, it's, yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. It, I mean, harm now means emotional harm. Right, that's that's the shift yeah. really, and that's where it becomes really dangerous, especially again in education, because if you're talking about emotional harm, then you're talking about ideas and even books, which is why you end up getting this, the whole trigger warning thing, the microaggression question, because as soon as the idea of emotional harm and managing emotional harm becomes institutionalised, then well, what does that mean for academic freedom? Because if you have academic freedom then that could be harmful for some people. And what's more important is actually to protect, which is how you end up with the kind of the Lisa Kiyo situation um, at my university, where, you know, the, the, di the disciplinary framework is established so that if some students find what you're saying not to their taste, then they can make a complaint about that. And the, the, the priority for, a, for any university using the correct human resources framework is to say, oh, well, we need to look into that, you know, because we need to protect students. You know, we need to be inclusive. <laughs> we need to be able to allow all students to participate and make them safe, right, so that they're not offended and so on. So you get this kind of protective um, etiquette, morality, uh, developing around this kind of EDI framework. So it's, it makes it very difficult. You know, because it is like, um, it's got a kind of religious dimension to it almost, you know. Oh, not, for not, for not, sure. not just in terms of the dogma, but in terms of, you know, the correct behaviour and, you know, the how you must present yourself, the language, you know, you must learn correct terms and language and, and so on. Um, yeah, I mean, it makes it, you know, this, this, as a sociologist writing on these things, um, there's, there's plenty of work for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, so the word you've used a couple of times is therapeutic. 
And another thing I would suggest is it's extending forever childhood. It's, 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 it's kind of, it's viewing adulthood as um, either unobtainable or um, deeply suspicious. All right, so we're now in a situation where up to the age of 25, um, criminals are being convicted criminals, including uh, people who are guilty of, for example, rape, yeah. um, ha have, having um, much lighter sentences because the brains hadn't properly developed and basically they really didn't know what they were doing. Right? Now, um, you, know, you compare that to this country we mentioned 200 years ago where we were. Well, 200 years ago you had people at 13, 14, 15 taking serious adult responsibility quite quite widely in, in 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 society and certainly by the time they were 18 they were expected to be entirely independent um and uh so we are infantilizing perhaps yeah. this is not this is not guiding this is not guiding the next generation to an independent adulthood this is keeping them young it's a sort of um it, it, it's the sort of thing that was associated with over-anxious mothers who, who wouldn't let their children develop, who wouldn't let them ex experience risk um, so they never they never kind of launched as adults. It, it's sort of like that, but on a, on a society-wide basis. Yeah. I mean, it's a, again, it's a confusion of rules, isn't it? That um, you, you're, you're adultifying children with things like the sex education and the idea that if they want to say that they're a different gender to what they are at whatever age, then that's their choice. Um, and the idea of that children are kind of can be liberated in this way, whereas historically you would understand that liberation is an adult concept. You know, it's a kind of political adult concept. You, you don't think about children liberating themselves. It makes no sense, right? If you understand what a child is. Um, and then at the same time, you've got this infantilizing idea that uh, a child can't have any real responsibility until they're 25 because some scientists have said a bit of your brain isn't quite as developed. I mean, what I find really fascinating, I don't know, I don't know if I'm going to be able to explain this well enough, but what I find really fascinating about this 25-year-old criminal thing is that, for me, it's a brilliant example of the disconnect between the modern elites and the past, right? Because... They think, because some scientists say, oh, look, that bit of your brain hasn't quite fully developed until you're 25, they've made a breakthrough in understanding, right? Whereas we always knew, and, you know, you, you, you ask your parent, your grandparent, your great-grandparent, your great-grandparent, and so on, people always had a, a, a certain awareness of a thing called maturity and experience, right? And, you know, you wouldn't, weren't that surprised when an 18-year-old was a bit of an idiot, Right? Whereas if he was asked, acting the same when he was 38, you would think there's something fundamentally wrong with him. This, this was kind of something that people um, understood. It was a, just in community, just from life. Right? You didn't need a scientist to come along and say, oh, look at this benchmark, blah, blah, blah. Whereas now, all that idea, that idea of common sense, right, of that was, you know, in, in all institutions, right, in terms of when you vote, when you can get a job, when you do the, everything, we, there was a kind of, a, we would draw lines and say, well, about then, right? You can say, you know, sexual consent, marriage, job, driving, and so on, right? Voting, um, 
and whatever. So there's a kind of, it's just a, a societal-wide understanding. Whereas now, they just that's all in the bin, right? All that in the bin. There's these scientists have said that this little bit of your brain is not quite fully formed. Therefore, you can't fully take responsibility. And so rapists are going to get their, their time reduced. And of course, again, it's exactly the, the point I was making before about ordinary people compared with the elites. Ordinary people just look at that and just say, that's insane. And when you look at the underlying <laughs> papers, which we, which we did in the column, we, we, we delved into the underlying scientific papers that were the basis of this policy, and they're garbage. Yeah, yeah. Right? They're, it's, essentially, um, it's essentially a lot of papers that say, yeah, we don't really understand this, but we're going to do this anyway. Yeah. Uh, it's 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 unbelievably poor. Yeah, well, it's the expert thing again, isn't it? There's a, there's an expert knowledge, and so all our past understanding is irrelevant. You know, our past understanding of you know just basic levels of maturity and where you draw lines in terms of uh, personal responsibility and so on. Um, and you get this magical idea that, and I mean, what well, what will be interesting actually is in sort of like five ten years time, if you have twenty four year olds think about themselves as well I'm not fully responsible yet because my frontal blah blah hasn't you know what I mean because mm, expert yeah. knowledge works like that you know it's yes. probably, they'll be educated this in schools you know they, you're not fully responsible yet will I have an impact on how you know young adults think about themselves possibly um but yeah it's it's a uh, it's well, just an <laughs> another area that, that works like this um is, is mental health, right? That's another area that's been pushed onto schools. Mm. I, 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 I did come across a description of, uh, I think it was schizophrenia, and they changed the definition at one point. So the experts started looking for different things, and the patients dutifully provided this, the, 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 the different sets of symptoms that were now required to get the definition, right? So how how explicit, how knowing it, knowingly it was done, I don't know. But the the the, the book definition changed, and after a little while, that what was being presented um, by the, the the patients, you know, came into line with the book definition. Um, so this this works. This feedback does does certainly exist. Um, if there's an area we don't understand well, it's mental health. Um, if it's an area that seems to be being compromised by lockdowns, by the lack of freedom that children have, um, by um, the lack of... I mean, we used to just... We, we had the run of the town when I was little. You would go anywhere you liked. You felt safe. No one worried about you. If you, if you wanted to play, you went to park and you would get a football game. And, you know, you, the, the, it, was, it, was, um, it was very laissez-faire the way it worked, yeah. right? And that's not the case anymore. Everything's much more organised in society. It's much more constrained. Yeah. Right? That lack of freedom, I don't think, is particularly healthy. Yeah. Um, all of this, the amount of time people spend in front of a screen the effect of social media. None of this is promoting wonderfully sound mental health. Yeah, I mean, the problem I have is I don't like the term mental health. No, neither do I. And the reason I don't like it is because it's part of the, 
therapeutic culture where almost everything now is being recategorized through psychiatric terminology. Right, so, I mean, the horrifying thing that is now going to be pushed into schools is, the, is this idea of tra being trauma-informed. Um, and you already have in Scotland this idea that uh, they have a trauma-informed approach, which works on the basis, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not paraphrasing here, I think this is almost literally the kind of the, the, <laughs> the description, is, this, is basically if you're working in public services, whatever it is, doctor, teacher, police, everyone, the people you meet will probably be suffering from or have suffered trauma. Right. And the reason that they think that is that they think that just about every experience you have is traumatizing. Right? So you, you look on a graph of the use of the term traumatized and it's like through the roof. So everything starts to become interpreted through psychiatric um, categories. Right? So rather than someone being having a hard time, you know, that they're a bit miserable, they're not very happy, they've had a difficulty, someone's died in their family, whatever it is, everything starts to become understood as not just that you, life sometimes has difficulties, but you have mental health issues, yeah. right? So, and this, so this, is, this therapeutic model is being, being pushed into school. So yeah. what, what do you see from the schooling point of view, from the education point of view? What, what effect is that having? Or what effect do you feel it might have? Well, the problem is that what happens is you, you start to get kids. So now what happens is you do surveys with kids and they survey it and they say, have, do you feel depressed? Do you feel like, and they say, yes, la, 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 and all the rest of it. And it's like, it, it is like a sort of a snake in, in its tail. That basically kids have been taught this language of trauma and depression and so on from a very young age. And then they, they're asked questions about it and they say, yes, I feel depressed. I've got this, that, that, and so on. Um, and all, then almost any experience is seen as being potentially traumatizing, which means that it's very serious, which means that you might need support, which means that you might be medic medicalized, right, uh, medicated. So there's a, it's part of a medicalization of everyday life, if you like. So, um, yeah, the amount of people who are on Ritalin or whatever these drugs are just starts to escalate. ADHD jumps from being a thing that you've is described with a tiny number of people to become a bigger number of kids and now adults, right? So you're now starting to get adults who say I've got ADHD and so on. So um that's it's just it's, there's a kind of an escalation of uh syndromes uh and a diagnosis of problems which uh, that becomes quite difficult once you've got that. Once you interpret yourself through a therapeutic prism, it's, it kind of has the potential to take away your sense of agency, right? Because you now know that actually I need this drug or I've got this thing um, that is forever, right? It's not, so you, you don't get depressed. You have bipolar disorder, right? And bipolar disorder is for life. Right, this is this is you. This is what you are. So I think that's what's generally that's what's going to happen. Is happening in schools and is going to happen all the more. Is that children are going to be encouraged to understand themselves as being essentially ill, and then you start to get a problem where pressure and exams are understood as traumatizing, which then becomes pressure on institutions. To, should you have exams because exams are stressful stress is traumatizing as they understand it which isn't inclusive 
Um, and so a framework of how you actually think about education and think about pushing kids starts to become a potential problem because you start to understand children through their well-being and their mental well-being and the fragility of children or the vulnerability. Um, and then when, where, where do you go with that? Ed education starts to become something that makes you ill <laughs> rather than something that can inspire you and lift you up and actually develop strength and so on. It starts to become a genuine problem or interpreted as a genuine problem that you know can be illness inducing and undermines your well-being um so you know take taken to that mad logical conclusion which you know hopefully you can never quite get to that that extent um <laughs> education itself needs to be abolished <laughs> uh, i don't think we'll, we'll ever quite get there the world's not not quite that mad here well it's being transformed and not in a good way um, one of your one of your authors, Kate Deming, um, had a had a piece um, uh, in in your uh, Substack newsletter called "Make Childhood Fun Again." Mm. I, I like this enormously because you're you're looking back. I look back more on childhood. I would have been much much worse if the systems now in place to help kids were were in, pl were in place then. Right. I lost my father when I was wee, it was five, right? So that's a adverse childhood event. So right. I was quiet. Well, that would be back in the twenties that was dysfunctional, a dysfunctional child. Um there would there'll be an equivalent now. We wouldn't use that word, but so I, I would have there would have been some effort to help. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Fortunately, right, they just left me alone. Right? And this was fine. I was fine, they left me alone. Le leaving people alone is a wondrous thing um, because I don't think that any of the help would have would have helped in the slightest any of the help that's an offer would have helped in the slightest and there was chance to be a kid there was chance to, to have fun there was a chance there was time there was as I say freedom and um, th this 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 is I think it's being lost um, so she writes she said she, she talks about the lockdowns and all the rest of it and uh, the, the producing of an angry generation, right? She said, but instead of standing up uh, to say we did this, we did something bad, we adults, we caused you harm, we're going to make it better, uh, we tell children they need self-analysis, that they need to look inwards and have a more positive mental attitude and to be aware of their feelings. It's the equivalent of punching a kid in the face numerous times beyond reckoning and then having a circle time to decide how everyone feels about it. It's sociopathic and it's got to stop. <laughs> um, you know, I, I rather like that because it, it's, it, there is a, there's a fundamental failure to understand what a child is, what childhood is, what a human being is that seems to be at the core of a lot of this. Um, and the... Th that that error is patched over with this therapeutic model or the well-being model or whatever, and none of it really fits because none of it relates to what human beings actually are. Um, so this idea of you know, make childhood fun again, um, it's it's such a simple phrase, but it does get very much at the heart of where we've gone wrong because one of the things that learning must be 
if it's to be successful, it's fun. Yeah. Well, I tell you, one of the things that Kate um, has written a few things about, which I thought was really clever insight, was about the kind of catastrophization of education. And she'd noticed that, and it's, it's around issues that I hadn't even considered. Um, I mean, my kids aren't at school now, so I, I, I'm able to avoid this stuff directly. But it was things like there's a, there's a flood in Pakistan and these nine-year-old kids were getting a kind of body count <laughs> by the school who were trying to raise money for it. And, you know, the kids coming uh, home were kind of like, all like, what's, what's happening? It's like anxious and upset. Um, and then the next week there was something else, right? And, you know, of, of course you've got the, the whole global warming thing, which is from a very young age, they've got a sense that the planet's on fire. Um, so you do have this, this, you think, well, wh where are the adults in the room here? You know, do you know what you look, this is a seven-year-old, eight-year-old kid, right? They're not going to solve the problem of global warming, right, to the extent that it is a problem, right? That's not going to happen, right? They might solve some problems when they're like in their 20s and 30s, fine. But at the minute, <laughs> they might be better reading, you know, about Rupert the Bay or something rather than about people all drowning and the planet being on fire. But it is a thing. and I mean, the, the most ludicrous one I saw was in Dundee every year at all the 16-year-olds from all the schools gather in Caird Hall. Right? So you're talking about thousands of kids. Um, and it was, if I, I haven't seen I feel as if I've seen it, but that's because my kids have told me about it because they went to it. Uh, and what they do, it's about, it's about traffic safety. Right, and so you turn up, and there's parents there whose children have died in traffic accidents. Right, and then they show these huge films of these cars turning over, and they've got parents and people weeping, and one after another after another. And there's girls passing out and crying. I mean, there's almost mass hysteria taking place here because they try to absolutely terrorize these children about not driving quickly, right? Now you can appreciate there's a there's a logic to why they're doing this, but you just think it's funny. On the one hand, they talk about, you know, these tiny things, you know, you, you, you hurt your finger and you're traumatized. But they're quite happy to, to come here and have these girls. I mean, literally kids were just walking out in floods of tears, you know, some were passing out. I mean, it's so horrifying what's being presented to the kids. But it's, the, again, the, it's that balance of sense of what, what are you actually doing here, you know? Can't, can't you get a sense of that there's something a little bit almost kind of perverse in your zeal for safety, right? And the need to pass on this message to kids well, on, around whatever subject it is. You end up with this kind of... It's like a, it's like a macabre. Some, it's you could do a comedy sketch. You know what I mean? If you if you filmed it, you thought it would, you'd think it was like a joke that this is actually happening. But you get these sort of situations. So you do you do have this problem, I think, that adults and teachers, whether around whatever it is, the kind of the messages that they they want to push onto kids, don't appear to have any sense of the potentially destructive and negative consequences of 
promoting such a you know a bleak, dangerous idea of the world, and it really isn't that bleak or dangerous. Demoralising, <laughs> absolutely demoralising. I mean, we've never been safer. You know, we've never been better off relatively. Never been safer. Um, you know, it's this life is so much more livable now compared with you know you just go back to the 1970s you know hardly anyone had central heating let alone anyone so you'd live freezing cold conditions half the time it's like the, the the levels of comfort and so on now I and mean, you know we can do much better but nevertheless it's a it's a really myopic one-dimensional um negative miserablest <laughs> sense of um humanity human society i think it just seems to generate this um this catastrophizing forms of education so um next step for stuart waiting what's next on your on your agenda for uh, subjects to tackle next um well I'm, I'm writing a paper uh trying to pick apart the idea that we shouldn't have jury trials in rape cases um which is very interesting. Um, I'm possibly thinking about whether I can look into the conversion therapy issue, which I think is a kind of fundamental one in terms of potentially destroying the idea of parental conscience, actually, um, and that you, you can't discuss or disagree with your child's gender or sexual orientation sort of thing that that seems to be a, a major shift if that if that comes in um and other than that i'm going to try and be raising money for the scottish union because i want to try and get some people employed so that we can kind of expand outwards that's the plan stuart i wish you well with <laughs> all of that and would you write your paper on well, either of those subjects. We'll uh, hopefully have you back to yeah, discuss it. Yeah, I'll send it your way. Lovely. Till then, Stuart Waden, thank you very much. Cheers.